This morning we're going to be in Ephesians, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians. It's kind of in the back part of the Bible, latter half of the New Testament, you see where it is in this. Kind of follows Romans, if you find Romans, then comes first and second Corinthians, then comes Galatians, and then finally Ephesians. And if you make it to Revelation, you've gone a bit too far. Seven score and 17 years ago, Abraham Lincoln uttered his famous Gettysburg Address. In fact, this past Thursday marked the 157th anniversary of that special occasion. By all accounts, Mr. Lincoln was a remarkable man. Not only was he an amazing orator, a brilliant wartime president, and our nation's emancipator of slaves, he was also known for his hospitality and his accessibility to the public. He loved to interact with the common man, and he maintained, unbelievably, an open-door policy throughout much of his tenure at the White House. He seldom turned away anyone who had the determination to patiently wait for an audience with him. Can you imagine getting to meet Mr. Lincoln in person? to get a glimpse of him at work, a chance to shake his hand, or even ask him a question. I bet if we did, we'd probably run around boasting that we had not only met Abraham Lincoln, but that we actually knew him. But can you really know someone you've barely met? Not really. Especially someone like Abraham Lincoln, who's long passed from the scene. To know someone, you really have to spend time with them. You have to do life with them. You can't just know them from historical, historical accounts or samples of their writings or their Wikipedia page. Unfortunately, some of us only know God this way. We know what the Bible says about him. We know all those stories about Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets. We know all those parables and those pithy sayings of Jesus. We can even wow our friends with our knowledge of theology and doctrine. But in the end, we don't really know God because we've never really encountered him. We've never had a real conversation with him because we've never experienced Experienced him as a real person. In a sense, we know God no differently than we know Abraham Lincoln. Just an interesting yet detached historical figure. But it doesn't have to be that way. God can be known. In fact, he strongly desires to be known, even experienced as a real live person right here, right now. And the text we're going to study this morning clearly demonstrates this to be true. God desires to be known, even experienced by us. Let's hear what the Spirit says to us through Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, starting in chapter 1, verse 15. We'll read through 19. 
for this reason, because I, Paul, have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now there are a lot of remarkable statements in that prayer. We're going to take a closer look at some of them. First, I want you to notice for what Paul is actually praying in verse 17. This is the key request of the prayer. He's praying, you can read it right there in 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit. Now, note the capital S on that word Spirit in the later versions of the ESV. Some versions don't have them, including this older version of the ESV. But that is a debate for scholars as to whether there's an S or not, a capital S or not. I believe the capital S is appropriate from the context. So we're going to go with that. And if that's correct, Paul is effectively asking God the Father, who's the Father of God the Son, to give us God the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's asking for the triune God to give himself to us. But wait a moment. Do not all believers already have the Holy Spirit? Doesn't Paul say that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit when we first heard and believed the gospel? Indeed he does. Matter of fact, just a few verses ahead of where we read. If you look up in verse 13, you can read about it. It says that in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So why would Paul pray that God give us the Spirit again just four verses later? Well, the Spirit is being asked to do something different in verse 17 than he does in verse 13. In verse 13, notice, he seals. In verse 17, he reveals. In verse 13, he sealed us when we first believed. In verse 17, he reveals to us more of God to those who continue to believe. That's essentially what verse 17 is saying. The spirit of revelation reveals him. The spirit shows us who God really is and allows us to know more of him. And then verse 18 goes on to reinforce this idea of revelation. The same Spirit who reveals the knowledge of God in verse 17 enlightens the eyes of our hearts in verse 18. It is the Spirit who reveals, or said another way, it is the Spirit who enlightens the eyes of our hearts. 
And just what does the Spirit reveal? First and foremost, he reveals God. And as a result, he enables us to know God, the knowledge of God. Not just knowledge about God, but knowledge through direct experience of God. It's what we might call relational knowledge or experiential knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge gained by walking through life hand-in-hand hand with someone we know very well, like a spouse or a family member or a very close friend. It's the kind of knowledge that knows who a person is at their very core. It knows their quirks, their responses, and all their pressure points. It knows what delights them. It knows what makes them angry. It knows their strengths. And it knows their weaknesses. This is the kind of knowledge that Paul prays we will receive. He asks the Spirit of God to reveal to us this kind of knowledge of God, who he is at his core, his response towards us, what delights him, even what angers him, his immeasurable strength, and his total lack of weakness. Yes, here in Ephesians 1.17 is God's invitation for us to know him in a way that is very personal, in a way that's very real, in a way that's very tangible. How? Through his spirit, the spirit of revelation that he has given to us to indwell us and to enlighten the eyes of our heart, just as verse 18 says. So we could sum it up this way. The Spirit enables us to know God better. And that's not all. Verses 18 and 19 list three more, what I'll call means of grace, that the Spirit brings to our attention, allows us to know as we get to know God better. Let's identify them. Let's pick them out. If you look at verse 18, you'll find two. Notice it says that we may know, number one, the hope to which he has called you. And then right after that, we may know the riches of his inheritance in the saints. And then you go to verse 19 and you'll find the third. You'll know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now let's examine these three statements one at a time. First, there's the hope to which he's called you. What does Paul mean by this? Well, Paul wants us to know, first of all, that we've been called to know and experience God. But who's the one who called us? It actually doesn't take a whole lot of thought or even searching out within the Bible to figure that out, you can actually look in the first part of Ephesians, the first 14 verses that precede this prayer, and you'll find the answer to that one rather quickly. Up in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who chose us, and therefore he's the one who 
calls us. And notice, that's the same thing Paul says in verse 17. When he prays, he says, May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, grant you to know, grant you to know him. And what has God called us to? You can continue to read Ephesians 1. You'll find a whole lot of things, a whole lot of goodies, a whole lot of blessings, a whole lot of promises. Verse 5 says, he called us to himself. So that's the first thing he did. He called us to know him, to relate to him, to experience him. In fact, he adopted us as children, according to verse 5. And he did so according to the purpose of his will. His will, that means that's his desire. He purposed, he desired for us to be called to him that we might know him. He strongly desired to make his own will and to fulfill his promises for us. That's what he had in mind when he called us. This calling entails a whole bunch of other promises here in the first 14 verses of Ephesians, which I'm not going to have time to go through. But what these do is they give us plenty of reason to hope and plenty of certainty that he who called us will bring all those promises to completion. Therefore, it is good to know and be reminded of the hope of our calling when we're discouraged when we're disappointed, when we're depressed. Remember the promises. Listen to God's promises as you read his word. As we sing truth about his promises, hear them. When you hear them proclaimed by each other to one another, let the Holy Spirit enlighten the eyes of your heart to remember that God calls us most Certainly. Now the second means of grace mentioned in verse 18 is the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Did I read that correctly? Did Paul just say God's inheritance is in the saints? How could that be? Doesn't God possess the world and everything in it? Why would he declare that his most treasured possession, indeed his inheritance, is in the saints? Well, let's think about this. What is an inheritance in the Bible? To us, it's usually just a fortune of money. But in the Bible times, it was a piece of land. It was a place of dwelling. It was a home. It was a permanent location that passed from generation to generation. So, let's think of God's inheritance in this way. God's inheritance is where he chooses to dwell forever and ever. And where might that be? Well, Paul's going to answer that question for us a little later in this letter of Ephesians. In fact, he devotes most of chapter 2 to explain God's dwelling place. And we'll look at that last verse of chapter 2 and notice what it says. In him, you also are being built together, you also being a church, people, 
the saints. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Surprisingly, God's dwelling place, his chosen place to dwell, is not where many of us would guess it to be. I would have thought that God's preferred, preferred place to dwell was in heaven where his throne is and where all the angels are, right? But according to Scripture, what I just read, that's wrong. God prefers to dwell with his people, his saints, his church. It's not just Paul who came up with this idea. It's actually repeated throughout the Bible. In fact, if you look at the very last book of the Bible in Revelation, almost the last chapter, Revelation 21.3, when the new heavens and the new earth are descending, it says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Remarkably, God has chosen to dwell with us. And so, he has placed his inheritance in the saints. And oh, the riches of that inheritance. Would that we know them. That's exactly what Paul prays in verse 118. That we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And how does this apply to us? What's Paul driving at? He wants us to realize what a treasure trove God's people are. God has stored up riches of grace within his community of saints. And he's placed each of us strategically within that community. One of the best ways to know and experience the presence of God is in the company of other believers, like on a Sunday like this. God literally dwells with us. And as Paul says later, he's knitted us together in love with other saints in our local church. We're not alone as we walk. We have fellow saints to help us carry our burdens and celebrate our triumphs. So let the Holy Spirit enlighten the eyes of our hearts to realize that God dwells with us most gloriously. And finally, one more means of grace. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? This one's perhaps the easiest to understand. Power, I get that. But for many of us, it's the hardest to believe. Not the power part so much, but that last, those last two words, toward us. Power toward us? Can the creator and sustainer of the universe really have immeasurably great power towards us? Puny, sinful us? Doesn't he have better places to wield his mighty sword and defend than his lowly people? But that goes against everything we know of God and everything we've talked about already. Why wouldn't the very God who chose us before the foundation of the world and rescued us to make us his dwelling place powerfully strengthen us and defend us as we walk the walk he's called us to walk? After all, we're too weak to walk on our own. We need his power just to get up in the morning. We need it to stay the course and keep moving forward. 
through all the uncertainty and all the suffering we each face. The Christian walk is difficult. No, it's actually impossible without the power of God strengthening us and enabling us to endure. And yet, we so easily forget that it's there surrounding us, sustaining us, enabling us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. You remember that story in the Old Testament where the prophet Elisha and his servant came face to face with an adversarial army bent on their destruction? Big old army in the valley and the servant's frightened. Elisha, he's not. Because Elisha saw something that the servant did not. So to rectify this situation, Elisha encouraged his servant, helped him know the surpassing greatness of his power. And he prayed this. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who were with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes. Enlighten his eyes. Open the eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and he beheld. The mountain was full of horses and chariots, of fire all around. All it took was a prayer for the servant's eyes to be opened and see where the real power lay. Those divine chariots of fire on the mountain were immensely greater and more powerful than anything that pitiful, rust-bucket enemy army had to offer. And if you want to know how it turned out, go ahead and read 2 Kings chapter 6 sometime. And I'll just give you a hint. For Elisha and his servant... It ended most excellently. But for those enemies of Israel, not so much. Oh, let the Holy Spirit enlighten the eyes of your heart to see what Elisha saw and recognize that God fights for us most powerfully. So church, take this encouragement from Ephesians 1, 16-19. God can be known. In fact, he strongly desires to be known, even experienced as a real, live person right here, right now. And he's given us his spirit to make that experience not only a possibility, but a reality. We can know the certainty of his call. We can experience the rich fellowship of his saints. And we can see the greatness of his power with one caveat. Notice that little phrase at the end of the greatness of his power towards us. Who believe? Those two words, who believe? All these promises are for those who believe. In order to experience them, you have to believe. You need to believe that God has called you to follow him, it was Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe that Jesus died for your sins. 
He rose from the dead to spare you from God's judgment, to save you from death, and to give you an ever-growing knowledge and relationship with him. And you need to believe in such a way that you begin to follow him. Follow that call wholeheartedly and eagerly seek to experience him on a daily basis. For then you shall have a new birth of freedom. And that relationship of the Lord, by the Lord, for the Lord, shall not perish forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your spirit to enable us to know you, to experience you, to know you like a best friend. Thank you for also giving us means of grace to know you, like the hope of our calling, like the rich inheritance of fellowship we have in the saints, and like the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us. Thank you, Lord. And Lord God, sometimes we have trouble believing this, but help us, help our unbelief. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.